Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. The last time we were together, you'll remember that the crowds were beginning to gather wherever Jesus went, mainly because of the miracles he was doing. And we left off when Jesus was taking a few quiet moments with his disciples on a mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Verse 5 of chapter 6 says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough food for each one to have a bite. So this is the feeding of the 5,000, and it's the only miracle, actually, that's repeated in all four Gospels. And if you read the account of it in Mark chapter 6, you'll learn something additional. And that is that one of the first things that his disciples said to him upon seeing the crowd was to suggest that Christ send away the hungry people. And I think that that's kind of funny because often we don't want to be bothered with uh, things that are inconvenient or difficult ourselves. Jesus never saw the crowds as an irritating interruption, though. He had compassion on them. Notice here that Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he wanted to test Philip and in so doing, teach the disciples something about himself. So he asks, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Notice he asks where, but Philip's just focused on the how. All he does is immediately consider the financial cost of what Jesus had asked. And he says that feeding them will be an impossible task. It would cost much more than they had, even if everyone only got a single bite of food. But the lesson here is that we should always focus Focus on the Lord rather than focus on what we do not have because he is our provider. You know, unbelief will ask a million hows, but the answer to all of those questions is but God. Andrew actually comes up with an idea, but he's not too sure what good his suggestion will do. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Can you hear the defeat in his voice? But how far will they go among so many? Now, I've heard this sometimes preached, that we should learn from this little boy and that we should share what we have with others as well. And while we are to be generous, this story is not about Jesus wanting the boy to share his lunch. It really is about Jesus wanting to multiply the boy's lunch. The miracle does not take place in the little boy's lunchbox, though. It doesn't take place in the hands of the disciples either. 
This is a miracle that takes place in the hands of Christ. Verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. You see, the disciples, like us, are only messengers. They are the delivery service of that which Christ alone can do. All they did was pass out Christ's provision. And the same is true for us also. Jesus is the miracle worker and all we do is pass on to others what we ourselves have received. And then something very important happened. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Well, even with such a large crowd, remember there were 5,000 men, so who knows how many women and children were there as well. But even with such a large crowd, there was still food left over once the people had eaten their fill. In verse 13, where we're told that they collected the leftover pieces of bread into baskets, the Greek word there for basket is kofinos, And this term was used for a special kind of small basket with a cord handle that people carried around with them. You see, bread was a very valuable commodity and people would collect up their table scraps into these small personal baskets so that the food could be eaten later. So do you see here in the text that there are 12 of these baskets? There's one for each disciple. And so what we learn is as the disciples distribute Christ's gifts to others, Jesus made sure that there was enough left over for them. The wonderful blessing of Christian ministry is in fact that as we serve, there is always a blessing for us in the end also. The people loved Jesus for what he had done. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. With all the people ready to make him king, Jesus now slips away. Why? Because he's always working to his father in heaven's timetable. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. 
In John's account of what happened that night, the thing that stands out is the fact that Jesus approached the boat walking on the water. In the Old Testament, in the book of Job, chapter 8, verses 7 through 8, there Job speaks of God, saying that he commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And so here Jesus once again by his actions is proving that he is God with us. Even in the storm, we're safe with him. And he told them not to be afraid. Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So realizing that Jesus had gone from the place where he'd fed the 5,000, the crowds followed in other boats to Capernaum where they knew that the disciples had gone. Upon reaching there, though, they were very surprised to find Jesus and calling him teacher, they asked when he had arrived, but really they were wondering how he had arrived there. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval." Jesus knows that they're not really there to learn. Sad to say, they are just following the food. It's hardly surprising that they were interested in a free lunch, though. I mean, who wouldn't be? Even Roman emperors around that time knew that they could control the people by giving them free food and free entertainment. And really, it's no different even today. But Jesus tells them that there's more to life than just physical food. There's something that only he can give them that brings eternal life that can never perish spoil or fade. The people, though, are used to trying to work their way to God, and so they ask him in verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Do you see that when they ask him what they need to do, they use the word works, plural. They want to know, okay, what good works do we have to do that will carry us through into God's presence? But Jesus answers them and he changes the word works to the singular. He says that there is only one work that God requires, and it is actually to believe in Jesus whom the Father has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign will you give us that we might see it and believe you? What will you do? 
Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you see how these people are trying to manipulate him here? They All they're really interested is having more free food that they don't have to do any work for. And their minds quickly begin to compare Jesus to Moses. They figured that if Jesus was as good as Moses, he surely should be able to give them something to eat each day, as Moses did. Remember, Moses was associated with manna in the desert. They really were motivated here by what they hoped to get. But they were mistaken about Moses because he hadn't given the people manna to eat. God had. Verse 34, Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Jesus is the true bread of heaven. He is God's provision. He is manna become man. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. And actually, this is the first I am statement in the book of John. Throughout this gospel, he is going to make seven I am statements. And this is the first one. The I am statements are important because in Exodus 3.14, when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself as I am. That was his name. Jesus used that same description of himself, saying that he is the only one who can satisfy our hunger. He is the only one who can quench our spiritual thirst. But according to verse 35, we have to come to him and believe. Verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus says, if you seek him, he will never turn you away. God the Father wants people to trust in Christ and be saved. He wants us to have eternal life with him. What Jesus said, though, was never popular with everyone. And in verse 41, it tells us that the religious leaders were starting to complain. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus was God's son and he had come down from heaven, whether that made sense to them or not. 
Verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Jesus says that the Father draws people to him. And I understand that there may be some of us wondering, well, if God draws some people, then why doesn't he draw everyone? The answer is there in verse 45. People are all taught by God from his word. He speaks through the scriptures, but not everyone listens to the Father or learns from him. In other words, we have a choice to truly hear or not. But those who do hear and who do learn from God's word will come to Christ. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. And those who come to Christ and who believe, they're the ones who will have everlasting life. Think about the manna in the Old Testament. If it's a picture of Jesus Christ, think about it. The people, they didn't know what it was. Actually, that's what manna means. What is it, right? They didn't know what the manna was, but each night it rained down on everyone without exception. But only those who chose to collect it were sustained. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He is God's manna given to us. Though he is given to all freely, not all will accept God's provision through him. Instead, they reject Jesus. They will not learn from what the Father has revealed. And by their own choice, they will not come to Christ. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. That which came through Moses only sustained life in a temporary way. It's only Christ Jesus himself who is able to give us ongoing life in God's presence. In verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I have given for the life of the world. Of course, though Christ is speaking in a spiritual sense, the religious leaders take him literally. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Well, when I read this, the first thing that comes to my mind is, dear Jesus, couldn't you have said this in a different way? But Christ has a reason for phrasing it the way that he does. Now, obviously, what Jesus seems to be saying here is terribly shocking. But we know that he's not speaking literally about us needing to eat human flesh because cannibalism was expressly forbidden under God's law. Jesus may have broken the Pharisees' laws, but he always obeyed his father's law. Christ here is talking about his sacrifice, saying that just as we need to take food into our bodies and process it so that we can live, so too, in a spiritual sense, we need to personally take in and process Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed on the cross. We have to do that if we are to have life in God's presence. And of course, having done so, out of obedience then to his command, we will remember his sacrifice by celebrating communion, which he has not by this time instituted. So faith is the thing that saves us, but obedience to his commands are the outward proof that our faith is real. So why then did Jesus put it this way when people would think it was so shocking and would find it so difficult to understand? Why would he do that? I think it's important for us to understand that there were a lot more people present than just his 12 disciples at this point. In fact, there were many people who were starting to call him uh, their teacher without truly being as committed as the others were. And what he said here would have had the effect of winnowing out those so-called disciples who were just following him because of the miracles. Verse 60 says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. According to verse 61, Jesus knew that people were struggling to understand what he had just said. He knew that he had offended them. But verse 64 makes it clear that he knew exactly who did not believe. And sure enough, many turned away from him at that point, going back to their old way of life. But what about us? I think that there are times when the Lord doesn't explain parts of his word or doesn't explain some of his actions immediately. And it's often only much later that things make sense. The question is, when we see something in his word or when he allows something to happen that offends us, are we quick to turn 
away and walk with him no more? Or are we willing to let him be God, knowing that we are not? Sometimes he uses those very difficulties to bring us to that point of decision. Look again at verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, in my own life, there have been many times when I have not fully understood God's purposes. I mean, for example, after a serious illness, my husband recently passed away at a very young age. And though I realize that for him to die and be with Christ is really his great reward, and I'm glad that he didn't have to spend years suffering, the reality is, is I'm still not sure why that had to happen now. However, I realize that when things don't make sense, I'm really being brought to the same point that Peter was being brought to here. Because when I realize that only Jesus has the answers, only he has the words of eternal life, I realize, well, where am I going to go? He is the only one who is worth following, irrespective of whether or not I understand everything. I know that God loves me just as he loved my husband, and he has my good at heart, whether I understand it fully or not. He is the only one who has the words of eternal life. He is God, and I am not. And my encouragement to you all is when hardship comes your way, as it surely will, remember the scripture and do not turn away. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Peter had made that amazing statement that Jesus is not only Messiah, but that they had come to know that he is the son of the living God. His only error, though, was to speak for the whole group, because not everyone believed what Peter believed. One notable exception was Judas Iscariot. But Jesus knew Judas. He knew his innermost thoughts. He knew Judas would still betray him. Nothing was secret from Christ, and yet he still chose Judas. You see, Jesus was always working according to his Father's will and with God's final plan in mind. Now, as we go into chapter 7 in our next lesson, we're going to see everything there will center around the Feast of Tabernacles that took place in Jerusalem each year. This feast was one of the three yearly celebrations that required all Jewish men over the age of 12 to come to the temple in Jerusalem. The feast was to remind the people of the journey that their ancestors had taken with God through the wilderness all those years before. For the seven days that the feast lasted, people would come into Jerusalem as they even do today, and they would live in temporary shelters 
pillars within the city made out of tree branches so as to make the remembrance of following God through the wilderness a personal one. There were also several ceremonies during the Feast of Tabernacles to remind them of how God's presence had been with them in the past and to remind them of how God's presence had filled the first temple in Jerusalem that had been built by David's son, Solomon. Now, that first temple that Solomon built had been filled by the glory of God. The second temple, however, once that one had been destroyed, the second temple was built out of the rubble by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. But God's presence had never entered that second temple. Of course, in Christ, God has become flesh and dwelt among us. And although many did not recognize him as such, God was about to enter the temple again in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we'll pick up in our next lesson. And believe me, you won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for all you've said to our hearts today in this lesson. Thank you for sending Jesus, the true bread of heaven, the manna who has become man, that he might give us true life and life abundant in your presence. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.